We are studying angels tonight, so uh, we're getting into a new lesson. We're going to trace the angel's role in the redemption story, starting with the birth of Jesus Christ, and you're probably familiar with several examples there, all the way to the apostolic age. And you might be surprised at how many angelic encounters are recorded in the New Testament along the way as the gospel is being revealed and uh, mankind was hearing it for the first time. But we start at the birth of Christ. So we're going to look, first of all, at the three narratives on angelic messengers who announced the birth of Jesus and uh, the first we're going to look at is from Matthew chapter 1. And this is the announcement to Joseph the carpenter. So let's turn together to Matthew chapter 1. And we're just going to work through this and uh, pause where we need to for comment. So here's how Matthew begins. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Mary and Joseph were introduced to them, and they are betrothed. That means engaged. As you probably know, engagement customs back then were very different than they are today. Today you buy a ring, you're engaged, it's a promise to get married, but it's not binding in any legal way or even socially. I mean, you know, not until you say, I do, are you married? Are you committed for life to one another? And so if you realize you made a horrible mistake, even the day of your wedding, you're, you'll get in big trouble with the, uh, the parents, I'm sure, and it'll be a very embarrassing situation, but you can get out of that without, say, having to get a divorce. But betrothal back in those days was a very different prospect. It was almost marriage. The, it was binding. It was a commitment. And uh, it, it was the, the couple didn't live together and the marriage had not been consummated. But aside from that, they were pretty much married. In fact, if you look in the text, verses 19 and 20 refer to Joseph and Mary as husband and wife. And the custom was that uh, you would become betrothed for several months, maybe a year. And preparations are made for the wedding. And the bridegroom on the day of the wedding would, would go in a, in a uh, procession towards his own home, picking up the bride along the way, and then they would go to their new home and celebrate in this final marriage feast. And you see that depicted in some of the parables of Christ. That's what's going on. A betrothed couple makes the marriage official, but they've been committed to one another for several months, maybe a year or more. This is the situation Joseph and Mary are in when we're introduced to them in Matthew chapter 1. You'll notice verse 19 says, Her husband Joseph, being a just man or righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph had three choices. According to that culture, his choices were as follows. Number one, he could just overlook the whole pregnancy thing and suffer the 
shame and humiliation of uh, going through that, which in that culture they would have regarded her pregnancy as a sign of immorality. They might have cast blame on him. They definitely would have cast blame on her. It would have been embarrassing for them, but he could just overlook it. But you see that he was a just man, so he didn't want to do that. Second option, he could give her a certificate of divorce. According to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, this was allowed in cases of marriage or betrothal, and uh, he could divorce her, you know, with good reason. He had the evidence here of the pregnancy, and so he could, uh, he could divorce her and put her away. You notice that he respected her still, and so he decided he would do it quietly, as quietly as he possibly could, to save her the embarrassment. The third option was to have her stoned, which according to the law of Moses under which they lived, adultery was a capital offense. Now, by Jesus' day and even centuries before that, those kinds of actions were, were very rare. Capital punishment was rare. Stonings were very rare. Uh, in cases of adultery in particular, uh, they could pay a ransom, and that's in the law of Moses in places where you could pay, you could ransom somebody's life for a price instead of um, committing them to death. And so what does he do? Joseph decides he's going to put her away quietly according to the law of Moses. He had found, the language of the law says, if you find any indecency in her, and he thought he had found such a thing. And so this was to him the lesser of three evils. That's when the angel appears. Verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill, Matthew says, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so if you look at that, there are several things revealed here when the angel comes on the scene. First of all, the angel says, don't be afraid to take this woman as your wife. Number two, he says, the child that she carried was not the result of immorality, not the result of any kind of unfaithfulness or adultery, but it had, it had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I have no idea, but what it means is Mary was a virgin who had conceived a child by the will of God. And that, that's, you know, the science of it, I have no idea how that works. But that's what the angel revealed. Number three, he said that she would bear a son. Number four, they were to call him Jesus. The Hebrew equivalent to that is Joshua. And uh, what does that name mean? Does anybody know what the name Joshua or Jesus means? Deliverer or Savior, which is why he says, he shall save the people from their sins. So the name, you, we've talked about names in here. Jesus' name is an identity a Joshua was a type of Christ because he delivered the people and uh, he delivered them into the promised land 
Jesus would actually do that in a spiritual way. He is the savior of mankind, the deliverer, and that's why he was named Jesus. Uh, he also said, or Matthew points out, that all of this was happening in fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14, which says that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means that this child would be the son of God. He would be divine because the name Emmanuel means God with us. So when this child is born, God's presence will be embodied in this baby boy. I love what J.W. McGarvey says in his fourfold gospel. Listen to this. He says, nature shows God above us. The law shows God against us because the law brings forth sin. But the gospel shows God with us and for us. I think that that's the completion, right? You have general revelation that shows that God is above us. You have the law of Moses that shows our sins. God against us, really, to be more accurate, we against God. And then the gospel shows God with us and for us. And that was the significance of the name Emmanuel. Now, did you notice how this angel appeared to Joseph? Did he walk up and knock on the door? It was in a dream, which is interesting. I think it was many years of my life before I realized that this was a dream that he was having. Um, but somehow God put an angelic visitor into Joseph's dreams and the angel communicated these things to him. Any questions or comments over that first part of the, the birth stories and the angel's involvement? If not, let's go over to Luke chapter 1 and look at the second example. In Luke 1, you have the announcement to Mary. Luke is interesting. He is the only Gentile author, not just of the New Testament, but the, of the entire Bible. And if you count the pages, he wrote almost half of the New Testament. That's really amazing because Paul wrote, what, 13 books? And you think, well, Paul wrote most of the Old Testament, uh, New Testament, but uh, Luke wrote more than Paul in terms of pages. He wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. The only Gentile to write inspiration. And you can really tell if you're paying attention because he gives prominence to the outsiders, to the marginalized, to the women, for example. And uh, the audience he's trying to reach is very clear. He gives us a lot more on Mary and on Jesus' childhood than the other gospel writers. Uh, just an illustration of this. Matthew's genealogical account that begins Matthew chapter 1 traces the bloodline of Jesus through Joseph. And somehow Joseph gets back to David, which is important for prophetic reasons. But was Joseph Jesus' father in actuality? No, we just learned that he wasn't. So Luke goes through the true bloodline, and he shows through Mary that uh, Jesus can be traced back biologically as a descendant of David. Not only that, but where Matthew begins with Abraham, the father of the Jews, where does Luke begin? 
He begins with Adam, the father of us all. So you can see his Gentile influence in that very uh, opening of the gospel account, which is actually Luke chapter 3, verse 23 and following. That's where his genealogy is. So that's interesting. And that's why you see more on Elizabeth, Mary's relative, the mother of John the Baptist. And when you get to Luke chapter 1, and you start looking for the birth story of Jesus, you find that it occurred six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. And that's uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. So let's read this together, and we'll work through this as we did uh, the last text. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Okay, uh, Luke just opened a whole can of worms here because he tells us that this angel visited in person, first of all. The angel that visited Matthew, remember, came in a dream. This angel, he visits in person. It seems that way anyway because he's sent from God, meaning he was sent out of heaven to Nazareth, it says. And it says that he came to her. Those verbs suggest that this was a personal visitation. In addition to that, we have a name. There are only two angels that are named in the Bible. And one is Michael, the archangel, and the other one is here. What's his name? Gabriel. Gabriel. So I want to pause here. And look at Gabriel. This is going to be our Gabriel time, okay? I was trying to think, of how, do, how do I work this in? There's some interesting things about Gabriel in other parts of Scripture. Uh, just a few verses earlier, he comes to Elizabeth. Or, I'm sorry, he comes to Zechariah, John's father, the husband of Elizabeth, who is Mary's relative. Uh, this is in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Zechariah is a priest. It's his turn to go into the temple and serve in the holy place at the altar of incense. Now, this is very close to where the presence of God was on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. And so there's the veil there and behind it, that mysterious Ark. And then in front of that is the altar of incense. And every day the incense was lit. And this was the hour to burn the incense. And it was Zechariah's turn to serve as priest in that capacity. While he is there in that very sacred place, the angel Gabriel appears. I think it says, verse 18, actually it's earlier that he appears. Uh, he, he's on the right side of the altar of incense. That's verse 11. And he gives his name in verse 19, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And he gave Zechariah a sign that his wife, who he thought was barren, would have a child by making him mute. And Zechariah couldn't talk until the day of his son's birth. So a very interesting story in itself, but that also involved Gabriel. Now the other place of all things that we find Gabriel is in Daniel. So keep your finger there in Luke 1. We're going to go to Daniel against my better judgment, and we're going to see what we can learn from what is revealed. And the first place we're going to go is Daniel chapter 8. 
We're going to start reading in verse 15. Keep in mind here we're studying the angel and not the vision, so I may skip some things just to get the details we can gain about Gabriel, the very same person who appears to Mary in Luke chapter 1. So Daniel chapter 8, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. So he had received a, a vision that was very symbolic in nature, very hard to understand. He starts to study what he had seen, looking for the significance. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And we've seen this before with angels, right? We know they're an angel, but they look like a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. It's uh, probably the Tigris River. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Question, did Gabriel say that? No, there's an unnamed man at the banks of the Tigris or the Euphrates River, somewhere over there in Babylon. And it's calling to Gabriel and commanding Gabriel to help Daniel understand. All right, keep that in mind. That's a very interesting detail. Verse 17, So he came near where I stood. This is Gabriel now that came to Daniel. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So he's trying to get Daniel to relax a little bit. This vision is not for your time. It's for the end. Perhaps he's speaking there of the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, maybe other things. Like I said, we're not getting into the vision tonight. But he goes into an explanation of what the vision means, Gabriel does. And then he wraps that up in verse 26. And then after the vision, you see that Daniel was overcome, verse 27, and lay sick for some days. Then he says, I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is why I kind of laugh at people who wish they were prophets or pretend to be prophets. Uh, being a prophet is a hard thing. You know, David, Daniel, rather, was appalled by the vision. It made him physically ill. He, he, his nervous system was wrecked here over the frightening aspect of this angel, Gabriel. Okay, so we, we learned what we could from this. Um, let's go over to Daniel 9, next chapter. Now notice verses 20 through 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, notice he says the man, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So this is interesting. He's praying to God. He's trying to understand this vision that he has seen. He's trying to work these things out. And while he's praying, Gabriel comes in swift flight. Maybe this is why people think of angels as having wings. It doesn't say that he flew on wings. Swift flight can mean that he ran really fast. But what I think it means is he came immediately in answer to prayer because God was hearing and he wanted Daniel to know 
that he was hearing his prayer and he was answering his prayer immediately, swiftly. So Gabriel's there, the messenger. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And then he gives an explanation that I, for the life of me, cannot understand. So Daniel's a lot smarter man than me, but there's some powerful things there at the end of chapter 9 that we don't have time to get into tonight. But we learn a little bit more about Gabriel there. You remember the voice that commanded Daniel. I want to look at that for a second. I mean, commanded Gabriel. Uh, Go to chapter 10, since we're in Daniel, and let's look at verses 4 through 6. Daniel 10, verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like a gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And I heard the sound of his words, I heard the sound of his words. I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So it's a vision, but he's not asleep. Actually, this is so powerful, he falls on his face in a deep sleep, which I take to mean he passed out from the fear of it all. And then uh, when he does that, verse 10 says, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Gabriel did something similar in chapter 8. He falls down in this deep sleep and Gabriel says, get up, wake up, I got to tell you something. So this is an interesting text here. Go down to um, the end of the chapter, verse 19, and this man who was talking to him earlier, described in such a radiant way, he says, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So some people might think, well, this was Michael ordering Gabriel. But now we see that he's distinct from Michael because Michael is contending by his side, whoever this is. This isn't Gabriel. This is the man who commanded Gabriel. And we encounter him one more time in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 begins with Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. But then in verse 6, look at Daniel 12, 6. Someone said to the man clothed in linen, who is above the waters of the stream? How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? So you have Michael and this man distinct again. So the question is, who is this man? And most people agree that this man is one and the same with the, the um, commander of the, the hosts of Yahweh in Joshua chapter 5, 14. 
And if you remember back in our discussion of the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord, we connected him to that commander of the Lord's hosts in Joshua 5.14. So I believe, and I, I can't prove it, can't be certain about it, but I believe that the angel of the Lord is here in Daniel commanding Gabriel to go to Daniel and explain visions. And the only reason I went down that trail is because it's probably some territory you haven't covered before. I thought it might be interesting to you, but also this is where we see Gabriel in the Old Testament. And the only place we see him in the Old Testament. And now you've seen every passage of Scripture in the whole Bible where Gabriel is mentioned. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1. We have a little biography on this man now, or this angel. And we see that uh, he comes to Mary and he gives pretty much the same message that the angel gave Joseph in the dream, which is why most people assume Matthew 1 is Gabriel as well, but he's never named in Matthew 1. We just make that assumption. They would have the same message. God wouldn't send two different messages. So Luke 1, 26 says Gabriel was sent. Verse 27, he was sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Do you see a parallel there between her reaction and Daniel's? It's not quite as extreme, but it does say she was greatly troubled. And um, doesn't seem to be what he's saying. If someone came to me and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you, that would make me feel good you know, feel at peace. So there must be something about the appearance of Gabriel that strikes her. He looks like a man, but there's something strange about him. Verse 30, he said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary speaks back to him. She said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And it says that Mary treasured these things up in her heart. So that's the second announcement of the birth. The first one being the dream of Joseph. The second being the personal visitation to Mary. And these are both private encounters. So if Joseph and Mary chose not to tell anybody about it, they would have been the only ones to have known. And you never see them talking about it to each other. But I assume that they probably mentioned it. I mean, something like that. Mary seems to have been a very private person, but I doubt she would have kept this from Joseph. Uh, so that's the second one. Let's look at the third announcement. This is to the shepherds, and this is the public announcement. 
chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and following. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. This is the only public announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The other two were private. God could have sent these angels to officials, to kings, to priests, to wealthy members of society in the city of Jerusalem, and instead he goes out into the fields and makes this announcement through an angel to a group of humble shepherds. Is there anything that we can draw from that? Is there an application there? I think everything the Lord does is intentional. And I believe this was intentional. It just, it wasn't that, oops, you know, we accidentally let the word out before we got to the city. This was the audience that he wanted. And it says something about the nature of faith. It reminds me of Jesus with the children in Matthew chapter 18. Unless you become like little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he mentions angels in that passage in Matthew 18, saying that the angels are on their side. So I think there's a tie-in here with the shepherds. God wants people of faith, and to have faith you have to be humble, you have to be willing to believe. And, you know, it's like Gabriel told Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. But when we become puffed up with pride and we become arrogant and we think we have all the answers, when somebody does something we don't understand or when God does something we don't understand or he says something in his word we don't understand, we say, no, I can't believe that. That's impossible. Well, these shepherds were open to, to possibilities with God. And I believe that is an application we can make to this story where God chose them as opposed to anyone else in the world for this announcement. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Jesus would identify as a shepherd. Um, he would grow up in a, a very humble town of Nazareth. Um, he would have a humble occupation as a carpenter. His disciples, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, were all people who were either humble fishermen or laborers or people on the outskirts of society like Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. So there is a foreshadowing of his movement among the humble, simple people and his identification with the shepherd, the good shepherd in John 10. That's good. Uh, the pattern of the announcement is similar to Gabriel's. Let's look at how we've already read some of this. But uh, the angel says in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. You'll notice uh, the glory of God mentioned in verse 9. Uh, it appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, that's key, and that's an Old Testament allusion. Whenever the tabernacle was built, the glory of God came down to show His presence. When they were in the wilderness, they were led through the wilderness by the glory of the Lord. When the temple was built, same thing, glory of the Lord came down. Uh, when the law was received on Mount Sinai, the glory of the Lord came down. So the same thing is being communicated here with these shepherds, which is God's presence is coming down with these people. And uh, as I said, the pattern of the announcement is very similar to Gabriel's to Mary. The angel appears. The shepherds respond with fear. The angel reassures them. He shared the divine message they were to hear, and he gave them a sign to confirm it. Unlike the previous announcements to Elizabeth and Mary, though, there's no objection or a request for a sign. You know, Zechariah says, I need a sign. So Gabriel says, okay, you can't talk anymore. Be careful what you ask for. You might get it. And then uh, Mary says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. The shepherds, you don't, you don't have any objections. Of course, this isn't happen, happening directly to them, so maybe that's why. And they're in a group, and there's, there's some differences. But I think it's interesting to compare Daniel with Luke and to see Gabriel and this angel that we're reading about here follow a same, the same pattern, the same reaction, and the people of trembling and being afraid. All of that is in these, these accounts. Uh, so, any, any comments or questions on the birth announcements? The, the rest of what I want to do, and I don't have a whole lot of time, is I want to, get, I want to just introduce the idea, since we don't have time to really flesh it out, that the angels were very interested in what happened next. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, just think about this. They're on the other side of these things. We're here, the church on earth. They're in heaven. So we see him ascend into heaven. They're on the other side as he is arriving. And uh, William Barclay has this interesting parable. It's fictional. It's, it's not biblical. But William Barclay told this parable about Jesus coming into heaven and the angels gathering around him and saying, uh, what are you doing next? And he said, well, I've established the church and I've charged them to carry my mission into all the world. And the angels say, that's it? You're going to leave it with the humans? They say, what if they fail? And Jesus' answer is, I have no other plan. It's interesting to think about. This is a passage from Peter that um, is one of my favorites. One of my first sermons were, was preached from this. Uh, I called it Concerning This Salvation from verse 10. But Peter's talking about the prophets and how when they prophesied, they didn't know exactly who they were prophesying about. And he said, you know, this is, 
been revealed to you, those of you in the Christian age. And so verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And the language he's using there means to gaze with outstretched necks. So they're just straining to try to see the gospel, the events that unfold. And so now, Jesus arrives in heaven. And just imagine the angels asking, are you done with us? Well, he wasn't. And so really quickly, we'll go through some appearances in the spread of the redemption story. Jesus' ascension, we will go over and read that. I know I just have a few minutes here. But Acts chapter 1 has his ascension into heaven. And verse 9 says, When he had said these things, as they, the disciples, were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus went in his body into heaven, his post-resurrection body, his glorious body into heaven, and he is going to return from the heavens in the same way. Uh, the next example is in Acts chapter 5. The Sanhedrin or the council has put all of the all of the apostles in prison. But uh, there's a prison break. The, an angel just opens the door and lets them out. And I want you to look at uh, verse 20 of Acts 5. He speaks to them after he breaks them out. And he says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And they go and they preach boldly. The council charges them not to preach anymore in this name. And that's when in verse 29, Peter and the others say, we must obey God rather than men. Now this month we're focusing on encouragement. I wanted to make this point. Look what a little word of encouragement did for those disciples. You know, this, this angel says in verse 20, go and speak to the people the words of this life. Go tell them. And it's just one little sentence. Look how far that drove them. They got beaten for this. And they went on their way rejoicing that they were able to do this. And they kept spreading the word and the church kept growing because of that little word of encouragement. So if you've got a word of encouragement, you can share it with somebody through a text message or a card or a phone call or a personal comment. Don't neglect to share it. I think the angels are a good example here. Uh, I also like this point from Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10. You see the angels in the redemption story bringing preachers to the lost. In Acts chapter 8, it's Philip being brought to the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts chapter 10, it's Peter being brought to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. What do we learn from that? God could have sent the angels directly to these people. It seems like he's going to a lot of trouble here. Why not cut out the middleman and send the angel to the Ethiopian eunuch? Why not send the angel to Cornelius? Would that not be more convincing, these angels that can make Daniel faint and get sick to his stomach? I mean, this would get their attention. But God's plan is for the redeemed to preach redemption. God's plan is for us, not the angels, to be ambassadors for Christ. God's plan is for us to be saying, be reconciled to God. 
Evangelism is not the job of the angels. It's our job. Real quick, uh, you see them rejoicing over repentance. This is the final one uh, from the parables in Luke 15. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And then uh, at verse 10, he says, the rejoicing is done by the angels in heaven. They're still interested in us, still interested in the gospel. They seem to be watching and noticing when one sinner repents. And so think about all of heaven's hosts rooting for us, wanting us to believe, wanting us to have this, this blessing, this grace that they don't have. He doesn't give help to angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Okay, that's all for tonight. Um, appreciate your attention, and we'll pick up with a new study next week.